Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast, a multimedia project intended to highlight the careers of leaders of color across the healthcare industry. Students, early professionals, and the community at large can expect to gain valuable, unapologetic insight on the career journeys of individuals whose lived experience and personal mission has been centered in advancing health equity. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Healthcare Hustle podcast. Um, today, we are joined by Dr. Yolanda Wimberly, uh, Senior Vice President and Chief Health Equity Officer at uh, Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Wimberly, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, Dr. Wimberly, we're, we're so excited to, to have you. Thank you again for joining us. Um, we're going to start the same way we always do for our listeners and our guests. Could you walk us through your journey in healthcare and how you came to where you are now? Certainly, certainly. So my journey in healthcare was definitely an interesting one. Um, You know, a lot of times when you hear people, especially people who say they want to be physicians, talk about just what are the reasons. I didn't decide I wanted to be a physician actually until I was in college. Um, I initially went to college to become a teacher. I wanted to be a high school teacher. And one day my dad says, well, why don't you just be a physician? They teach as well. And, you know, I said, okay. I mean, it seems real simple, but that was how it went. And so I, um, I actually majored in pre-med. And when I majored in pre-med, it was interesting. In my freshman year, my counselor told me why, that I would never make it into medical school. And this was in 1988. He said, you are never going to make it in medical school. You should just go and go to nursing school because that's what um, women do. He said, just like that. And I said, oh, I said, okay. So I went home and well, I was on campus and I went and told my dad and I said, dad, you know, my counselor, one of my counselors told me that I should just go to nursing school. You know, what do you think about that? And he, you know, of course, you know, was like, no, you should become a physician. That's what you want to do. And so I went back the next day to the counselor and I said, thank you for your advice, but I think I'm going to move forward with the pre-med program. And he said, okay. So, I mean, I know it probably would have been handled a little bit different in this day and age, but it was relatively simple. I moved forward. Um, I was an average student. Um, I wasn't just at the top of my class or anything. I was an average student. Um, so I definitely am a testament that a B student can actually get into medical school and do well. Um, I enjoyed my college life. Um, I was a well-rounded person in college, enjoyed it, majored in chemistry, graduated, and um, had acceptances to four medical schools, all four medical schools that I applied to. I chose to go to Meher Medical College, which is in Nashville, Tennessee, and that was my hometown, and matriculated through Meharry, had a great experience at Meharry, made lots of lifelong friends, graduated with 82 other um, primarily African-American people that were going to be physicians across the nation. Did my residency in pediatrics at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, their children's hospital, which which is in Chicago. Um, was there at Northwestern was quite interesting because of the 75 residents, it was only two Blacks. It was myself and another female who was a year ahead of me. 
And um, that for me was a pretty much of a, of a, of a culture shift because at this point in time, I had pretty much come from, I grew up in an all black community and an all black environment and all black Catholic school system. And then for high school, I went to public school and, but everything was predominantly black. Even at the college that I attended, there were about 40,000 students at the college, but about 5,000 were black. So we pretty much had insulated within a PWI, a black entity. So when I moved out, then went to Meharry, of course, which is an HBCU medical school. And now I'm going to Northwestern. It was like, whoo, really a huge culture shock for me, but a good one in a good way. I was able to really diversify my network learn about different cultures, learn about different people, which was very exciting for me and very inviting. Made lots of lifelong friends there, stayed there for three years, went to Cincinnati, Ohio to do my fellowship in adolescent medicine. And it was there that I really did hone my skills and um, increase my passion for taking care of teenagers. And so once I left um, Cincinnati Children's, I actually got a job at Morehouse School of Medicine, on a CDC grant initially, stayed on once the grant ended and stayed at Morehouse School of Medicine for 20 years where I ascended to the ranks to become Senior Associate Dean for uh, Graduate Medical Education as well as Clinical Affairs. And just recently on October 18th, transitioned from Morehouse School of Medicine over to Grady Hospital, which was really our main hospital for Morehouse. Um, and I'm now the Senior Vice President and Chief Health Equity Officer here at Grady. And this is an inaugural role for me. So this is the first time that I have been, um, that this is, a, I'm the first person in this role here at Grady. Wow. So, I mean, I wish we could just give a, a round of applause because it's a lot, um, you know, obviously, Dr. Wimbley, you're a trailblazer in many respects, and you, you touched on a lot, honestly. I think we had a lot of questions about your background, but one of the things that I was interested in about, you know, you, you've, you've done and, and seen a lot at different levels across different um, academic medical institutions, from Meharry, like you said, to Northwestern, to Cincinnati Children's, uh, to Morehouse, now Grady. What would you say is like one of the distinct or unique things about the HBCU medical environment and the PWI medical environment? And how do you feel your experience at Meharry directly contributed to who you are as a leader and as a physician? You know, the difference, and it's gonna definitely depend on the person, but the difference um, between an HBCU and a PWI to me is the support that you get having attended a PW, having attended a HBCU and taught at an HBCU is the support system. Um, HBCUs just in general are going to give you a lot more support, really from the fact that a lot of people who work at HBCUs work there for a reason, and they work there for the mission. They may not have ever really even attended an HBCU themselves, but they are there a lot of times because of the mission, and they decided to work there because of that. So that's the main thing that I see. And there's a sense of confidence um, when you're in an environment with people who look like you and understand where you come from and you don't have to explain as much stuff because people just kind of get you. 
Um, one of the downsides that I'll say to it, though, is that um, when people don't like you, they don't like you because of you. <laughs> so, you know, I always tell people, I said, now, I know if you don't like me, you really just don't like me, period. It's nothing about my gender or my race. So, but I think that um, I've enjoyed being in the HBCU environment. I think that there is a lot, there are lots of pros to being in that environment as well. And um, what I'll say, though, about the PWI environment is that there are opportunities for us as African-Americans to feel that same level of confidence within a PWI environment. It just takes a little bit more work, right? So it might be that you have a group like we did in college where it was 5,000 Black folks, you know, that's larger than some HBCUs. You just have to make those opportunities to be able to connect and develop that support system. I find in PWIs, I have to be more intentional for finding those support systems. Whereas in an HBCU, it's just pretty much kind of all around me and it's a little bit easier. Thank you so much, Dr. Wendy. I, I, I gotta say, you know, again, congratulations on your journey. I mean, it's, it's very inspiring. Um, you know, over your extensive career, you've proven yourself to be a trailblazer. Um, you've touched on, um, you know, every bit of the health spectrum from education to being a physician and now actually an administrative officer. Um, what would you say for people in the early stages of their career are some of those skills that really served you well throughout that entire spectrum? You know, I have um, all the times middle school kids and high school kids who come up and say, oh, I want to be a doctor. What do I need to do? You know, there are different stages. I tell people, first of all, if you're middle school or high school, I tell them to learn Spanish period. And they look at me like, that's it? I don't have to do science? No, do well in school. Well means be average or more. I mean, you don't have to be a straight A student. I tell people just as long as you get you a good solid B average, if you can do more, that's fine. But don't get, don't get discouraged if you have a B average. Just get a B average if at all possible. Couple of C's, not too many. I tell people not more than about two C's a, a year if possible. Maybe like phys ed or something. That's fine, you know. But no C, I try to tell people no, don't Try not to do any season major courses like math or science, um, just because of the fact that that's what schools look at in particular. But um, I tell them, first of all, learn Spanish at that stage. And when you're in college, I tell people to live your life, be well-rounded, go out, do things, um, go hang out with your friends, network. I truly believe that college should be a time for you to network, to grow, and to mature. Because when you get to medical school, we're going to teach you everything that you need to know. So I tell people that that is the opportunity for you to hone your socialization skills, to hone your leadership skills. I tell people in college, I never really liked being in an organization where I didn't have a, um, a title, right? Like I'll be secretary, treasurer, president, or vice president. Because I'm going to give my all to that organization anyway. That's just my philosophy and my work ethic. So I might as well have an officer title. So I tell people, when we look at applications, I don't look to see that you were part of the club or the group. I look that you had a leadership because you could have a thousand people that are part of the group, but I'm looking for that. So I tell people to make sure that you're intentional about the clubs that you join and also holding leadership or having leadership opportunities in those particular things that's going to stand out. Rather, you list in 17 different organizations or committees or something that you were part of, 
and you have no leadership experience in any of them versus if you list five and you have leadership experience in four of the five, that's going to speak more. So I tell people it's more about quality more so than quantity in those college years, but enhance your communication skills, enhance your network. You want to make sure that you get good grades in college, be average or above is fine, but you don't want to be so focused in college on only your studies that when you get into medical school and then you get into residency that you feel that I haven't lived my life because I've been studying since I was in kindergarten and now I'm 27 and I'm burnt out. So I tell people, you need to make sure to have your fun and to do those things. You know, sometimes people come to me with these combined programs too, like they have mid school as well as college combined. It's like a six year program, right? So others may feel differently, but I tell people, get your four years of college in there. Because what happens is when you shorten it, the workload increases. And what happens is you may not have an opportunity. Say you mess up, that's already linked. If I mess up in college, I can maybe try to make it up my junior, my senior year, summer school, that kind of stuff. If I mess up in that type of a program, that is something that is, you know, that, that, that everyone will know. So I just tell people, I'm not saying don't do it. Please don't take that as that. I'm just saying we are so, young people are so much in a hurry to get to the next step that we don't live life and enjoy the moment that we're in. And so that's why I tell people, enjoy the moment that you're in. You will have the rest of your life to work hard. <laughs> to, you know, to work 60, 70 hours. I promise you, you will have it. <laughs> but just enjoy that time because that is also a valuable part of your education and a valuable part about becoming a physician. Because the physicians as a leader in the community, I have to have been in the community and know what my community is doing. Otherwise, I'm just leading in the hospital. Right. And so having those connections and a network is going to be very important for people. Even my mentee, if my mentee is watching this, I have two mentees and I tell them they're pre-med and one of them, she just is always, I said, your job today, and she'll call me, she's like, Dr. Remley, where is she? I said, your job today is to go to a party. Huh? I need you to go to a party. <laughs> <laughs> I said, and then one time I made her take a picture. I said, go to the party and take a picture of yourself with friends at the party with you smiling and having fun. And so she sent me the picture. <laughs> but I tell people you have to, those are the things that you have to do um, just for your sanity, for your well-being, but also for your education. People don't think about that as part of their education too. Well, I think we got the headline for the podcast there. Dr. Wimberly says, go out and party if you want to be <laughs> successful. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for sharing that great advice. I think balance is so important no matter what you're doing in life, whether you're in school, whether you're working, you, you got to know when to take a break. Because like yeah. you said, you've, you've got all the time in the world to work. We can always do that. Um, kind of interested in your transition from your fellowship into your career at Morehouse as a physician. Mm -hmm. um, what was that first leadership experience like that you got um, after being a faculty member there? And how did you prepare for that transition? 
So I tell people, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And when opportunities knock, you have to be prepared. So my first leadership experience, I was not expecting. Um, I was a faculty member just doing my job, doing my research, seeing patients, teaching. And um, a dear friend of mine um, texted me, well, now actually texting that we weren't texting then, emailed me and said, hey, Yolanda, we got this opportunity with, um, with um, an organization and we want you to go up to be um, on, this, uh, on this committee with ACG. They want me to be on this committee. And I said, oh, okay. They said, we need an adolescent medicine person. You're an adolescent expert. Let's go ahead and we want to put you up. Okay. So they gave me, they prescribed to me everything I was supposed to do down to who should write my letter of recommendations. Um, they sent me everything that I needed to do. It was very prescribed, very strategic. I didn't know at the time, but it was very strategic on their part. So I, so I said, okay. So as I was getting my application and everything together, I, I, I submitted it. Um, but I was asking questions. So you know how when you submit something to an organization, I was calling and speaking to, to the um, assistant on the phone, administrative assistant. And I was like, well, what do I do with this? And I was always just very nice to her. We have like little conversations. She was in Chicago. So she'd be talking about how cold it was and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So we just kind of chit-chatting. So I probably talked to the young lady now, but maybe about four times on the phone. So I submitted my information finally. Um, and then um, about a week later, I got an email that said that I was not selected. And I said, okay, that's fine. You know, I mean, it was a long shot anyway. And I was like, that's fine. I didn't get selected. You know, I'm moving on to the next thing, right? So about two hours after I got the email, I got another email that said, Dr. Wimbley, can you call me? And it was the young lady. I said, okay. So I called her and she said, we are opening up another position and we need to make the committee larger. So can you, can, can you resubmit your information? Because I, I want you to resubmit your information to see if you make it on the committee this time because we have a larger position, a larger committee now. I said, okay. So she said, if you like, I can just, you know, submit everything that you have and then it's done. I said, that's fine. So then she did that. And then a couple of days later, I got a letter in the email that said that I was now a committee member. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, I'm a committee member. So it was funny because as I went to the first meeting, I really didn't know what to expect. Um, and when I tell you that I was the youngest um, and I hadn't even, I, I really didn't fully, to be honest, quite honest with you, understand what I was getting myself into. <laughs> um, and when I went there, I was so intimidated. Because here I was, this 34-year-old African-American female who was just starting out in her career. And on the committee were like these 55, 60, 65-year-old, mostly men who were chairs and distinguished and deans. And I'm on the committee with them. And so it was funny because when I showed up for the first meeting, they said, are you the resident representative? I said, no, I'm, the, I'm a regular representative like you guys. I mean, like they kept asking me that. And I was like, oh, okay, what have I got myself into? So when they put the agenda up and they put all the stuff up for orientation that I had to do, I just looked and I must've had a look on my face <laughs> of sheer, just, just, just fear. So afterwards I was like, oh my gosh, what have I got myself into? I don't know how to do this. You know, just everything came in, self-doubt, lack of confidence, everything. 
So what ended up happening was no one at Morehouse School of Medicine had ever been on this committee with this organization before. So for them, they were like, well, we don't really know how to help you. But luckily, um, what I did was I reached out to one of the members. Um, it was a female who actually was um, from Mercer. And I reached out to her and I was just very transparent. I said, look, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm feeling overwhelmed. I said, can you please help me? I said, I'm really smart and I'm a, and I'm a quick learner, but I need somebody to help me. Do you know what she did for me? She took me that night. She said, well, come to my, come, come to my room and we'll meet because we were there for five days. She said, we'll meet and we'll go over some stuff. We stayed up to like two o'clock in the morning and she went through everything with me and explained everything with me, everything to me. And she told me when, when I was leaving, you have to succeed. You cannot quit. You can do this. Those were the last three things she said to me when I left her room that next day. So the next day I did presentations, I did everything. And everybody was looking at me like, oh, this was a drastic change, <laughs> you know? And I ended up actually, I'm still with that organization 17 years later, I'm on their board of directors, you know? So it was definitely a success story. But what I did was I was able to identify what I needed go after what I identify, go after what I needed and have someone to help me. Because I'll tell people, there's always people out there that can help you and that will help you. And to this day, Marcia and I, whenever we see each other, we have just a strong connection. Even 17 years later, when I tell that story, she's like, Yolanda, I didn't do that much. She just does not understand how much she did at that time to help a junior faculty member. And I will tell you, that's probably one of the best decisions I've made in my career was being on that committee because the everyone on that committee embraced me um, and wanted me to succeed. And it's funny now because they'll brag and they'll say, I remember when Yolanda, when you were just a little junior faculty member, you know, they like to say that, right? You know, and I say that in my residence and stuff too. Now I said, I would never say it, but I'm like, I remember you a medical student and they've been out of medical school for like 15 years, but I still say it, right? But they'll say the same thing to me. Like, I remember like, I remember when you were just a young girl and da 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 and, and I said, and, I, and my gift to you is to do things to make you proud, you know, and to give back. So that was probably my, one of my all-time best and favorite leadership stories to tell about how you can overcome anything. It's about grit. It's about critical thinking and figuring it out. If you're smart, you can figure the other stuff out, right? I can figure out how to do it. I just might need to go to somebody to help me with a little one-on-one, -on -one, but I can figure it out. Wow, I'm just, I, you know, it's thank you, thank you. Um, all of these stories, it's so interesting hearing you speak, Dr. Wimberly, because as I'm thinking about just who you would have been as a mentor to so many aspiring physicians, really, it sounds like you kind of focus on the person first, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the physician later. And I think, you know, you said a really, just a lot of really powerful stuff in there, um, just about, you know, who you want, you know, those students to be when they get to that point in time. So I think that's excellent. And then just thinking about, the generation of folks that you would have trained that would have been you know of color that would have walked through the doors at Morehouse School of Medicine a lot of powerful stuff but I want to pivot a little bit and ask more okay. of a, a healthcare specific um, okay. question as it relates to your experience as a physician particularly okay. in Atlanta where you have served uh, the community as a pediatrician 
Okay. What is what has it been like? And what is your experience, you know, serving, you know, the city of Atlanta? And, and what are the different things that you've seen over uh, your course of, of just practicing in the community? Mm-hmm. So when I first came to Atlanta, uh, being an adolescent medicine specialist, um, there weren't many of us. I think it was maybe two, maybe two board certified in the entire state. Um, I may have been the only one at one particular time, and then we had one like right after, but I was the only one in Atlanta that was board certified for a long period of time. And people didn't really know what to do with me because I came in and they were like, adolescent medicine, we don't know. What is that? You know, we don't know what you do. Now, because we are in the South, adolescent medicine isn't something that's very popular as it was in the Northeast. Where I trained at Cincinnati Children's, there were like 12 adolescent medicine physicians, like we were a powerhouse. And to come South, you know, when people hear about teenagers, they're thinking about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? And they're like, ooh, what do you do? What do you do? You're a pediatrician. So initially, my, I remember my chair told me, you're going to have to come in and see kids and just build your practice and build what you wanted to see. I'm always up for a challenge, but I was like, wow. That was interesting because when I came to Hugh Spalding, Hugh Spalding was straight children's, like children's hospital, the babies. So initially I was doing all these clinics with babies and stuff. And I'm fine. I love the babies, but I did an extra three years of training. So I I said, I need to get to see the teenagers. So what I ended up doing was I ended up speaking with um, the clinic director where I was. And I asked her, I said, look, I need to see teenagers. I know you guys have teenagers in the system. Can you help me figure out how I can see the teenagers? She said, well, I can go through and pick out all the teenagers in the system and then send them something to come to you. Very archaic, I know. There was no sorting and all that stuff we have. There was none of that. It was paper charts where we're like, okay, okay, let me take that as a patient. Let me take that person. So we built that in addition I started to look at the Atlanta University Center and I said, you know, who does their care? Who takes care of the the college population? And nobody really knew. So one day I just drove over and knocked on the door at student health centers. I went to Spelman and Spelman said, well, we have some docs in the community that do it. um, But, you know, we can kind of see what we need to do right now. We don't need anybody else. That was fine. I went to Morehouse College. Morehouse College said, well, we have someone who does it already. I said, that's fine. And these docs were internal medicine docs. So they were internal medicine. They were not adolescent medicine specific. Um, So then I went to Clark Atlanta and I'll never forget Miss Simpson. And she goes, now you're what kind of doctor? (laughs) And she said, they explained to me what that means. Are you family medicine? You a pediatrician or internal medicine doc? So I was trying to explain and so I said, why don't you tell me what age group you need me to see? And then I can tell you if I can do it. She said, well, I need you to see these college kids, you know, college age. And I said, that's what I do. So she actually hired me on the spot. And she said, well, we need a doctor. We need help. So when can you start? So I said, okay, hold up, hold up. Because at this point in time, now I need to go back to my chair and say, hey, I found another job. <laughs> Can we work together so that Morehouse, you know, can do this? So that because I said, you know, Morehouse School Med School do it through Morehouse. So my chair, Dr. Dunstan at the time, who was uh, I really do like Dr. Dunstan, she was very visionary. And she said, Yolanda, if you can work it, 
we can contract with them, but I need you to figure out how all that works. I've never done this before, so you're going to have to figure out how to how to do it. I said, okay. So I started asking around, and I went back to Miss Simpson, and she said, well, why don't we try this? And then Dean Allwood got involved and said, from Clark, and said, here's a contract. Give this. So I gave it to them. And the rest is history. I was at Clark Atlanta for 17 years. One of the best clinical experiences I've had in my life. But it, it came from me literally knocking on the door. There was nobody that said this. It was, And so now that relationship still remains. But for 17 years, that's, that's how I did it. So that, so that between that and then now I'm at Hugh Spalding. And Hugh Spalding now has a teen clinic. So... I think we've had a teen clinic at Hughes now for about 10 years. And so I work in the teen clinic with um, two other adolescent trained physicians that are out of Emory and then I'm out of Morehouse. And so we have a pretty robust clinic. Um, our practice is pretty big. I see patients there every Thursday um, and I love my patients. I tell people, you guys should be so jealous of me because I have the best patients. I love my patients. They're problems at all. Their problems really aren't problems. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's things that really I tell people on most days, the thing that I do most people always ask me, well, Dr. Woman, as a teen doctor, what are some of the things that, you know, you, you, you have challenges with? And they think it's STDs and pregnancy. It's not. Those kids, they already know. Whether or not they do what they know they're supposed to do is a whole nother story. <laughs> but I have never told anybody wear a condom. And they say, you know what, doc? I never heard of one before. No. I mean, I just haven't. I just have it. It's about getting to the reasons, getting to their why, why they do things. So for me, I feel like I have the best job in the world because my biggest challenge really, I focus a lot on education and family dynamics because those two underlying things are going to determine what your trajectory is and what risk you take. I find that my kids who pretty much have a educational foundation with goals they want to be reality tv star whatever it is they all want to be reality tv star now that's fine we're gonna roll with that but you still got to graduate high school <laughs> you know because you have to be able to, to 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 read your contract and so i i really try to get with them to to help them understand the value of education and the value of being able to complete high school and to be able to be um, and to be able to be employable in the future. So that's really a lot of what my we talk about. I mean, we talk about sex, drugs, and rock and roll a little bit, but I would say probably over the past five years in my practice, that, that has drastically changed. It used to be, you know, STDs, pregnancy, and all that kind of stuff. But after the pandemic, we now, these kids are so innovative. They are so creative at this time that they're, they're telling me, there's like a social media major at some of these schools. I mean, they keep me young too, because they come up with all, I'm like, I didn't know you could major in social media. Like, yeah, that's what I know. And I'm, you know, I mean, they, they teach me so much. <laughs> and then, you know, Instagram and, uh, you know, and they talk about, you know, we talk about, they sh I have all my patients show me their Instagram pages. It's funny. You should try it because it tells you a lot about a person in 30 seconds. The majority of them will show me their Instagram page if they have it. I tell them to clean it up first. I give them, about, I give them, I give them a warning. And I say, I'm gonna, I want you to show me your Instagram page in about five minutes. And then I'll leave the room. 
to do whatever they got to do, make a fake one, whatever. But they show me the Instagram page. And then that is part of how I get to really understand who they are and what is important to them by what they have. Thank you so much, Dr. Wimbley. Yeah, you know, this, this conversation has been so motivating. Um, I love the fact that you recognize the need. Um, you did the work to kind of make sure that that need was met in regards to the adolescent medicine, but also how, you know, um, I guess inspiring you are to the youth, um, including myself. Uh, I'm going to actually take a step back and uh, just ask um, for maybe the listeners who aren't as aware, what is, what is health equity? Um, why is it so important? And if you could, you know, if, if you could just give us a, maybe a story or a instance as to why it hits home or uh, why it's so important? You know, it's interesting since I've had this role, um, people ask me that all the time. The first thing, my, my kids, mom, what is health equity? Does that mean you're still going to be working with the residents, you know, the medical residents? Um, you know, and health equity means different things to different people. The canned response really is that it is giving people the right resources to obtain their optimal health in general. So um, redistribution sometimes is required depending on what the situation is and the, and the social determinants of health. Some redistribution of resources may be required, but it's, it's about being able to give people the resources that are needed to optimize their health. And for me, you know, Somebody said something to me a couple of months ago that I thought was really interesting. Um, it was somebody that said, you know, Yolanda, I just don't understand why people just don't go to the doctor, make the appointment, go to the doctor, get the medicine and do what the doctor says and stay out of fast food restaurants. If that's the case, then a lot of people's health will be different. And to be honest with you, that's how a lot of people feel that don't have learned experiences with this because they feel like, you, you know, you probably shouldn't be going to McDonald's getting that Big Mac and supersizing it. So all you have to do is stop doing that, maybe go to Subway and get you something healthier and be compliant and then you will have health equity. But what people don't understand is the context of health equity begins when we're in the womb. It begins with the environment that you're born into the family that you're born into, the access that you have. Health equity is built your entire life so that this outcome of you having diabetes is not just because you chose to go to fast food restaurants a lot. It's because of the fact that before you were born, your environment and the family dynamics of what you were brought into really did push you in that manner. You know, a lot of times we don't think about slavery. People not, don't try to talk about slavery, but we don't talk about how that as well as redlining, zoning laws, reconstruction, all of that historical, the civil rights movement, all of that history has an effect on the environments that we live in and the access that we have. And so that takes a toll on what those outcomes are. Now, I will say with the newer generation, when people have better access and they know better, they're able to decrease some of those gaps. But some things just never go away. There, I was reading this article where they said there are three things that determine equity. equity. It's going to be your socioeconomic status, 
it's going to be power and it's going to be your material resources. And that is so true. It breaks it down so simply. Your socioeconomic status is really a lot of times determined on what you were born into and or what how you what what your um what your education level is okay your material resources are going to be your housing your money you know any type of things that can be bought what can you get equity in power is in not just having a job as a chief health equity officer but i tell people does your job have power do you have the power to change things do you have the power to make policies you know, if you look at the Fortune 500 companies, you got your first black CEO of a Fortune 500 company in 1999. And to date, I think there's only like five or six since 1999. <laughs> I mean, so it's not a lot. And so when you think about us as African-Americans, yes, the progress that we've made has been good. But when you look at the progress in just looking at how many black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies you have, they lead the way. They are the ones who have the power. And you look at, you know, the housing industry, the most wealth is built through home ownership and land owning. With the redlining that pretty much existed up until, and probably exists in some areas, but existed up until the 90s, that's where that equity was built. So when we go to folks, houses and we're like oh my gosh this mansion is so huge oh it's been in my family for 100 200 years you don't have that wealth so all of that equals health care and people say well how does that equal health care it equals it because i can somebody can pick up the phone and call me and say hey dr Romley, i've been trying to get in for an appointment can you get me in i probably can get them in tomorrow but if they call the regular number it will be about three, four months if anybody picked up the phone. So I tell people that's what the difference is with that access piece and that networking and that knowing people. And with health equity, it's just not as simple as Miss Jones just needs to go to the doctor and take her medicine and stay out of fast food restaurants. Because maybe Miss Jones has a job that's 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. So the access to the physician is not there because the only access she has is the urgent care of the emergency room because that's the only thing that's opened after hours. And most doctor's offices aren't even open on the weekend. And if they are, they're booked out months and months. So I've often told my colleagues, why do we have office hours from nine to five? It doesn't make any sense. That means I fuss about it all the time because I'm like, now every teenager that comes to my clinic has to miss school. They have to miss school to come to my clinic. And my patients are smart. They don't just do like a half a day. They take the whole day off. <laughs> Even though they're with me like an hour, it's like the whole day. <laughs> because their parent may or guardian may have had to take the whole day off to get them there. Or when they get there, they have to stay two, three hours. So at the end of the day, it's easier to take the whole day off than to, you know, than to try. But the things that we in healthcare do also to keep these inequities. I don't understand why we don't have clinics that go from four to 10 at night. I don't understand why we don't have, we're not open 24 seven or long hours on Saturdays and Sundays. That's when people can come when people are off work. But we have these clinic hours between nine to five when people are working 
And not everybody has the luxury of having a job where they can just take off to go to the doctor. Some people have to choose, well, if you take off work, do I want a job or do I want to go to the doctor? So we don't think about that, that access piece and how amenable we are as a healthcare system to what that looks like. And so that's going to be one of the big pieces with that as well as access, but then education level. There's many studies that have shown that even if you are college educated and you are African-American, that doesn't necessarily mean the treatment in the healthcare industry is going to be the same as a college educated Caucasian as far as the services that are offered, the treatments that are provided. And so I tell people, you have to be a strong healthcare consumer. You have to be able to know how to advocate for yourself, how to look things up, how to research things to ensure that people are giving you all the options possible and that you are an active participant in your healthcare. And as an African-American, unfortunately, we have to really make sure that that advocacy is, exists. So until we start to do some things in our environment, in my opinion, in the community, and we change that, it's going to be very difficult for us to achieve equity. If we look into the hospital to give us equity, it's not there. We've got to look to the community to demand of the hospital what we need and what we want so that it then can, can come to fruition. And so that's why with my new position, I'm really focusing a lot on community engagement and community because I think the answer is in the community. The answer lies in us. It does not lie in an institution somewhere. Do not put all your eggs in the basket that an institution is gonna come up with a policy or whatever that's going to help help equity. Until we as African-Americans decide to get together and advocate for ourselves as a community, that's when we're gonna to start to see that change. If we so were in, oh, sorry. Question, yeah, so the question that people ask is what's health equity? My answer is now, I can give you a 10 page dissertation or I can tell you if health equity is what you need to do because it's right, it's the right thing to do. So when you, in your mind, you know that this is the right thing to do, that's what health equity is, is giving people the help that they need to be able to get the services that they need in their lives to, to have health. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you just added to it. I was going to say, if we were in church, I would say amen. <laughs> um, and uh, speaking on action, I'd love to hear a little bit if, if you can share about some of those initiatives that you're taking in your role at Grady to help advance health equity within Atlanta and within the community. Yeah, so, you know, the first thing that I've done is I've done listening tours, and um, that has been so valuable. I would suggest that anybody who takes a new position do it. Um, and so I've gone to now probably about 300 folks in the organization, and I've said, what is health equity? What does it mean to you? What is equality? What are some of the programming that you'd like to see us have? So those are some of the questions that I've asked. Um, it's I've, I've had um, some, some low-hanging fruits that I've, some successes, um, hopefully coming out, well, I will come out with my strategic plan um, within the first six to seven months on the job, but right now I'm, I'm starting to develop it. But one of the things that we did, we did four activities in, in the month of January and February. The Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority had a mobile van 
okay? And they were doing mammograms. It is a wonderful project. Shout out to the AKAs. It was wonderful. It has nice bands and it's based in Arizona, but they take it across the country and they take it to a different city every weekend. And then they do mobile vans for people who are uninsured. So we partnered with them when they came to Atlanta. I found them on LinkedIn. I mean, y'all, I found I found on link on social media and I said, oh, I called them and within 24 hours, they called me back. I said, we'd like to partner with Grady. We'd like to see what we can do. They said, great. It was a great collaboration and hopefully we'll do that with them annually. But um, they were able to screen, I think, 80 something odd people in two days, which is wonderful for um, do screening mammograms. 13 of those patients, um, we were able to get some of our Grady patients in there because they, there's a wait list for mammograms. So that kind of win, right? That's a win-win. Um, the other thing we did was um, there's a high school, Westlake High School, and there's a fabulous teacher, Miss Angela Reeves. She came up with the concept of, uh, it's called the Westlake High School, the takeover. It was a conference of, um, about career development, mental health, lots of different types of sessions. And so Grady, we co-sponsored that event and we did actually six of the sessions. We did healthcare exposures. It was really nice. We did some SIM stuff with trauma, our ambulance services, emergency medical services. We did all of that. The kids loved it. it, had about 300 kids. So that was another one. We also, you know, there's a blood, there's a national blood shortage with the pandemic. People just aren't giving blood like they used to. And it's not like people were giving blood anyway, but they definitely weren't giving it with the pandemic. And because Grady is a large trauma center in the Southeast, the only one in Georgia, we consume a lot of blood. So what I did was I went to our, uh, our, our person, Marilyn McCain, who's up for our last, who's been doing the blood drives. I said, um, doing the blood drives, I said, Marilyn, can we partner? Can I help you drum up some business? So we did an impromptu blood drive with American Red Cross and got 87 units of blood, which I'm told was a lot of blood for a, for a six hour program, which was a lot of blood. Um, and so we did that. And so now we're going to do those every month. So we're instituting those within Grady to do those on a monthly basis, whereas we were doing them quarterly at first. And then the, and then the last thing we did was um, I read the newspaper. I'll, I'll have to tell you guys the story. Dr. David Satcher, if you guys don't know who Dr. David Satcher is, Dr. David Satcher was a Surgeon General of the United States. He was also um, the uh, director of the CDC and was in the Department of Health and Human Services. He was one of my mentors. Dr. Satcher, um, I remember when I was the medical director under him, he told me, he said, Yolanda, do you take the paper? I said, what do you mean take the paper? Now, remember, I'm like, I must have been about 35, 35, 36. He said, do you take the paper? I said, excuse me? He said, do you take the paper? Do you get the newspaper? I said, oh, no, I don't read the newspaper. He said, that's a shame. He said, you don't get the newspaper that comes to your house? I said, no, but my, uh, my grandparents do. He was like, no. He said, you need to get the newspaper to deliver to your house every day. And I said, but Dr. Satcher, I don't read the newspaper. He said, that's the problem. How can you be a leader and you don't know what's going on in your own community? I said, well, the newspaper doesn't tell me that. He said, it does tell you that. He said, that's not the only thing. But it's the easiest thing that you can do as a leader is to read the newspaper every day. He said, I don't care if you don't do anything but read the front page, but people, you need to know what's going on. 
You can't say I'm too busy to read the newspaper or watch the news because that's unacceptable. So the next week I went out and I subscribed to the AJC. I said, okay, I'm gonna get the newspaper. So I started get I started taking the newspaper. And I tell you, that has changed my life because I read the newspaper, people laugh, every single day. And if it backs up, I'll read like three papers at one time. But every morning I get up, I get my coffee, I get my paper out of the driveway. I'm trying to teach my new dog how to catch it, but he, he won't bring it to me. I bring my, I bring my paper up and I read the newspaper and it, and it takes like seven or eight minutes, but I look at it and what I'm doing with the newspaper is I'm just learning about what's going on in my community. So I say all that to say for that last eat win that I had. I was reading the newspaper on Feb and on February the 1st, there was an article in there about a woman who was an ICU nurse and she had went out and started her doing COVID testing out of her van and she got a storefront and had done over 40,000 tests and how as a person, she had just done all this fabulous public health stuff in the community. She was giving immunizations. And so they were kind of featuring her. So I went on to my network and I said, does anybody know her? Within 15 minutes, I had her cell phone number. So I called her and she answered on the first ring. And I said, hi, I'm Dr. Remley. You don't know me, blah, 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 blah. Long story short, the next week, I took about seven people with me from Grady and we went out to visit her in Stone Mountain. We went out, I said, I want to see what you do. This is fabulous. Cause she wanted, she was like, I can come to you. No, 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 no. I want to see what you do. We went out there and I said, we need to see how we can partner and just help you be successful in what you want to do. So that weekend we had the Westlake event. I asked her, I said, do you want to do that? So she ended up doing that, coming out, doing lots of testing with that, lots of networking with that. Then at a retreat on Friday, this past Friday, I'm doing my updates and presentations to about 300 leaders at Grady and I'm talking and I'm like, okay, we did this. And we went out and met with her. Somebody comes up to me and says, I have 20,000 COVID tests. They're about to expire. Do you think she would want them? I said, uh, I think so. So I called her back. She answered on the second ring this time. She answered the phone. So I said, I don't want to overwhelm you, but I have some COVID tests that someone wants to donate that are about to expire. Do you want them? She said, how many? And I kind of chuckled. I said, 20,000. She said, sure. Did not she said, when can I get them? I said, can you get them tomorrow? She said, yeah. So I connected her with a person. They met up and she ended up, I don't think she got all 20,000. I think she got five. She got 5,000. So I talked to her and she's given out the majority of them over the weekend. I mean, fabulous. So now she's going to come back and get more, you know, from that person. But I've connected them so those are the things that I'm envisioning at Grady that we don't necessarily have to be the ones that do it, but we are connectors too. We are advocates. And so some projects we will do and lead, but some projects what we do is we support the folks in the neighborhood who are already doing it. We just want to make sure you're successful because if I give you 20,000, 
you sat for a minute, right? I mean, you sat for a, a, a minute. And so I think that some of the stuff that I'm doing will be, yes, direct programming, but some of it also will be advocacy and supporting programming that's already present and then collaboration. Because one thing I know about Grady Health System is the folks who work here, they are here because they wanna be here and because they want to help um, they want to help folks who sometimes have limited resources and they want to help them be have equitable access to things. And so that's kind of, I mean, that's just, I mean, I've just started the job, but those are probably my four highlights. And, and I smile because I tell people my job is so much fun, you know, you know, we go on field trips and I think even some of the folks at Grady, they're happy because they're like, oh man, we get out of the hospital. Yeah, we get out of the hospital, go into the community, you know? And so I've decided that since, and, and remember, I just saw her from the newspaper. I didn't know her. I, didn't, I had never heard. I just got her from the newspaper. And she told me, she said, Yolanda, you're the only person that's contacting me from the newspaper. Because I told her, I said, a lot of people probably going to start contacting you because you're doing some wonderful stuff. And so I think it's just things like that, that, um, that that I feel that that's why I was put here. These are not, I'm a very I'm a very spiritual person. So I think this was definitely the phrase and but God, because I think that that these things are not just coincidental. These are things that were put in place because of the fact that we are doing good work and we want to be able to just one building block at a time. You know, I tell people it's one step at a time. But yeah, that, that's probably my example, um, Mr. Williams, of, of just what we've been doing um, just in the past you know, month. And now with the Westlake program, we're gonna extend it. We're gonna do pilots. We're gonna start to do more stuff with hopefully with the school system so that we can start to build that pipeline. Um, and it's not just for physicians, it's for public health folks, it's for radiology techs, it's for I mean, I, I've learned so mechanics is for, I mean, it, I've learned so much from the folks here with what type of allied healthcare careers we can have physical therapist, you know, people who want to be an entrepreneur, you know, you can be a physical therapist. Somebody wants to be a physical therapist. I said, well, you know, you go around, you see benchmark therapy, you see all these physical therapy places that you never really paid attention to before. So you want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. You can be an entrepreneur and a physical therapist and have you a whole bunch of different branches. I mean, we're always trying to find a physical therapist for somebody, right? And so just being able to really talk to the kids and retool. And actually, my um, my um, my one of my patients told me that because he wanted to be a physical therapist. And I was like, oh, okay. He was like, yeah, because I want to open up practice. And I was thinking to myself, I didn't think about that. And then when I left, I started paying, you know how you pay attention when somebody says, I started paying attention. And I said, oh, he's 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 on to something because he's like you know doc it's like starbucks there's a physical therapy place almost on every corner and i started noticing it and now y'all gonna start looking at it but i started noticing <laughs> whereas before i never really paid attention <laughs> oh that's awesome thank you so much for sharing i loved the the, the concrete things that you guys have been able to accomplish in such a short amount of time. I think I find, and Brandon and Winston can probably comment on this too, sometimes when you talk with 
you know, especially young visionary people who are excited to make a change. We all, they always want to do the most. They want to change the entire city or we got to rip up the whole system. What I love about what you shared is that there's small concrete things that have a direct impact on the community. And those things are just as important as wanting to revolutionize or change everything. We, we have to start somewhere and those things have a significant impact. Um, so thank you so much. So we've, we've approached the end of our time. And I don't know if they gave you a warning about this, but with each of our guests, we do a quick rapid fire set of questions. So okay. I'm gonna come at you with three questions. Okay. Don't think about it too much. Just give me the first thing that comes to mind. And then afterwards, we'll give you some time to share where people can find you and anything else you want our listeners to know. So whenever okay. you're ready, I'll hit okay. you with them. Okay, I'm ready. All right, first question. Favorite go-to lazy dinner? Uh, pizza. Love it. <laughs> Beach or mountain? Oh, mountain. Nice. Cats or dogs? Dogs. I figured based on your newspaper story, but I had to throw it in. There. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with us, Dr. Wimberly, and for the, the stories you shared and the, the leadership advice that you gave for our listeners. I think it's going to be well appreciated. Where can people find you? Do you have a website, Twitter, LinkedIn that people should look out for? I have LinkedIn. I'm Yolanda Wimberly. And then I have Facebook if people are on Facebook. Although my patients tell me Facebook is for old people, but I have a Facebook page. And then um, I have Twitter, but I don't quite know how to really use it that well. So I don't know what my handle is or anything. <laughs> no, I don't use my Twitter. You're, you're not alone. Um, so we'll be sure to share out that information in the, in the show notes for people. And just want to take the time to thank you again so much for everything that you brought on and you shared today. Okay, no problem. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for the episode, and we want to thank you for listening to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Make sure to check us out each month on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and stay up to date with the Healthcare Hustle fam by following our page on LinkedIn. The marathon continues, so keep on hustling.